Welcome to Waterbrook Church located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we seek to be a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic family that is captivated by Jesus, compelled to love others, and called to make disciples to the glory of God. As always, we would love to pray for you and with you. Go to our website at waterbrook.church and click prayer. Let's worship together. Kind introduction, just a blessing in the time I've known him and just been a great to worship with you guys. Um, you know, the heart of a Christian who's been born again uh, is that we live uh, to exalt Jesus. It's kind of our chief desire now, and uh, it's been great to just exalt Christ with you this morning. So uh, I'm excited um, to just come share God's word with you, and I'd just like to pray one more time. We've already read the text, so I trust that you're with me in Hebrews chapter 4, but I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into our passage. Well, Father, thank you so much um, for your goodness, Lord. We do want to just exalt uh, your great name um, this morning uh, and just continue to do that in the word. I'm freshly reminded that every time we gather to worship, it's warfare, and we're going to engage now. We're going to fight to see Christ for all that he is, fight to have our hearts moved and affected by him, and uh, fight to see our lives transformed because that's your promise is that as we worship you, uh, you can form us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so I trust that your spirit's going to help us do all of that now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, Gabe uh, shared just a little bit about me um, and just to um, kind of build off of that because uh, this will be relevant as we jump into our uh, text. I am really passionate about counseling. Um, the Lord rescued me out of uh, a heroin addiction. I was addicted to heroin from 16 to 23. And um, I have found that God's word is counsel. Right? So yes, God's word should be proclaimed. The gospel is proclamation. We're called to herald that. But I also believe that every time um, we get up to proclaim God's word, to teach God's word, to dig in God's word, it should be counsel. It should be life-transforming power that changes the way we live. Right? And so as we walk through this text in Hebrews, um, it's with confidence draw near is the title of the message because that's my goal is to help us with confidence draw near to the Lord, that he is a safe place we can turn to throughout life in this fallen world. Now, um, I'm going to begin by just sharing a little bit of vulnerability about my life because it serves as a pathway into this text. Um, one of my besetting sin struggles, you can probably tell as a uh, redeemed drug addict, um, but one of my besetting sin struggles is escapism, right? So escapism is when you seek to run away physically, emotionally, or spiritually from a difficult situation. I've had so many moments like that that I just are uncomfortable. I feel the heat of living in a fallen world, and oftentimes one of my besetting struggles is to run away, right? Um, that's why I turned to drugs and alcohol as a teenager, um, and continued early into my adult life because drugs and alcohol served as a way of escaping unwanted emotions, unwanted circumstances. <clears throat> now, it'll be no surprise to you then uh, that there's a TV commercial that has always resonated with me because it captures my struggle. And uh, it's the old Southwest Airlines uh, TV commercials, Want to Get Away?, if you've ever seen those commercials, right, uh, they have a few varieties, but all with the same message. And I was looking up uh, those commercials afresh, and um, 
There's one of them, one of them in particular that shows a guy walking down the street. He's kind of getting into a car uh, parked with a driver in it. And it's clearly insinuating this is his Uber driver. So he's in downtown and uh, he gets in the car and uh, the driver looks back at him with a confused face. At which time his phone rings and he realizes he got in the wrong car because his driver's calling him saying, where are you? <clears throat> now, before he can exit, the doors on both sides open, two men jump in with masks and bags of money, say, go, go, go. <laughs> At which point you realize he got in the wrong car. He is the worst case scenario of wrong place, wrong time. They just robbed a bank. And uh, the screen then pauses and it says, want to get away? <laughs> Which, of course, that guy did. And it says, now you can. And then they promote their discounted airfare. Want to get away? That statement captures the desire to escape, which is a common experience in human life. Ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, we live in a world cursed by sin. Hardship. We all have moments that we want to get away. The question is not, do you struggle with this, but whom do you turn to when you want to get away? That's the ultimate question. Who is your refuge? Where do you go when you face the difficulties of life in a fallen world? Where do you go when you're struggling with besetting sin? Where do you go when you're tempted? Where do you go when you're suffering? Wherever you turn to, that is your functional refuge. Now enter our text. We are told in Hebrews 4 that we, the average Christian can with confidence draw near to the throne of God and expect to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. God's presence is a place you and I can learn as followers of Christ to run to as we seek to live and honor Christ in this broken world. And this morning, that is my goal, right, is to help us live out verse 16 and draw near to God's throne with confidence, now, there's a logic to this text, and the way we build our confidence, according to this text, is by looking at verses 14 to 15 to start, right? We look to the person and work of Christ in relation to the office of priest, right? So that's the logic. Since then, we have a great high priest, right? And we're going to talk about what he's done. Then, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So the confidence comes as we consider Christ as priest, which is going to tell us about his character, who he is, what he's like, and his work, what he's done for us. And that is going to empower us to draw near. So that's where we're going in this text. Now, um, we're focusing in on Christ as priest today. There are a lot of names and titles for God in the scriptures. I mean, you could spend your entire life studying the names of God. Right? He is beyond any one title, though. Right? That's why um, maybe his chief title could be, he is I am. Right? Um, at the same time, though, each name that you come across in the scriptures of God is meant to convey something about his character. Right? And we know that when you come across uh, God being our shepherd. Right? What does that convey? His tender care of the flock. You come across passages that talk about the Lord, he is king. Right, which means he is sovereign over everything that he has made. He is the supreme ruler over it all. 
Jesus is the bread of life, the living water, the way, the truth, the life. He is Christ. He is the Son of God, Son of Man. He is prophet, king, and in our text, he is priest. So let's begin by just considering the office of the priest. The Levitical priesthood was established by God during Israel's time at Sinai. God set apart one tribe with no inheritance in the land, the Levites, who were to serve as priests. Priests were chosen among the people of God to represent the people before God. They would offer sacrifices for the people, and on the garment that the priest would wear, he would wear the 12 names of the tribes of God's people because he would go in to make atonement for them and represent them before God. The tabernacle where the priest worked contained an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies, which represents the presence of God. Presence of God is marked by holiness. He is so other than. He is morally pure. He is so set apart from us. And you have to do all this work to get there. And even then, only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest could go in there after making sacrifices for the people's sin. So when we consider this office of priest, we can say he has two primary theological functions. He's to make atonement for the people by offering sacrifices for their sin, and he's to act as a mediator between God and man. So he represents us and he reconciles us to God in his presence. Now, to understand this, this is where the Bible just, you got to read your whole Bibles, right? Because we have to make sense of all of this. And really, the book of Hebrews is drawing so much on the Old Testament language of priesthood. But there are two truths that you must know to make sense of the work of the priest. God is holy and man is sinful. You miss these truths. The gospel doesn't make sense. The Bible doesn't make sense. This passage doesn't make sense. We must know these truths. So because God is holy and because we are unholy sinners, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, it is absolutely crucial we set these two truths next to each other. That's what we're going to do for a minute here. I'm going to use Jonathan Edwards to help us do it. Here's a quote by him, the great American Puritan, considering man's sinfulness and God's holiness. He says this, If we could behold the infinite fountain of purity and holiness, and could see what an infinitely pure flame it is, and with what a pure brightness it shines, so that even the heavens appear impure impure when compared with it, and then should behold some infinitely odious and detestable filthiness brought and set in its presence, would it not be natural to expect some ineffable, vehement opposition made to it? And would not the want of it be indecent and shocking?" The question becomes, how can man, sinful, odious, detestable, approach the infinite fountain of purity and holiness that is God and not be consumed? That's the question. This is the main point of the tabernacle. God always intended to dwell with his people, but because of sin, right, they got kicked out of the garden and there was a flaming sword separating man from the presence of God because of sin. There is now this separation and if man is to come near to worship God, it must be on his terms, not ours. 
That's the only way you can come to God. You have to worship him on his terms, not ours. And we see that in the tabernacle. Everything's got to be done according to this detailed instruction or you would die. If the priest didn't do it the right way, he can't just walk into the Holy of Holies. He would die. Right? And you get glimpses of this in some of those passages that we kind of want to brush over. Be like, I don't know what to do with a passage like that. Where Uzzah, um, in 2 Samuel 6, right, he simply touches the ark. He's got good motives. He reaches out. He wants to save it. And he touches the holy presence of God. R.C. Sproul has a great line about that where he says that Uzzah's mistake was that he thought he was cleaner than the dirt. Wow. That puts that into perspective. Now, the whole point is that if we approach God, we got to do it on his terms, which means there must be a sacrifice for our sins. And so we know this. The priest would take an animal kill it, sprinkle its blood, signifying the remission of sins. This has to be, there has to be death because the wages of sin is death so that God's people can be forgiven and live. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this atonement has to be made because the Bible, ever since Genesis 3, presupposes our guilt. Guilt before a holy God. Now think of Jesus as the mediator between God and man. He fulfills the office of priest perfectly and makes the necessary atonement for our sins, absorbing the holy wrath that we deserve, and he represents us to God and reconciles to him and presents us blameless before his sight. So that's what we're seeing in this office of priest. But notice now there's a description of what kind of priest he is. He's not just a high priest, He is a great or mega high priest. He is remarkable in consideration to all the other priests. And this is actually one of the main points of the book of Hebrews. It's to highlight the greatness and superiority of Christ, specifically as we look back to the Old Testament and take notice of all the people and types and shadows that now, through the lens of the gospel, we can look back and see how they pointed to Christ and how he is much more superior. So let me give you a couple examples of this. Hebrews begins by demonstrating Christ's superiority in God's revelation. So the book literally opens this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, So he's greater than the prophets and the revelation in the prophets. He is the supreme prophet, you could say, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. A few verses later in Hebrews 1, 4, we're told that Christ is superior to angels, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. And in Hebrews 3, 5 to 6, Christ's superiority is shown in contrast to Moses, the supreme deliverer of God's people in the Old Testament. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Christ is the great high priest, superior to every other high priest before him. And it is important to know here that his greatness as high priest is not in light of the worst priest in Israel's history. 
right? Like he's not a great priest simply because he didn't offer strange fire like Nadab and Abihu. He's great because he is the substance of what the intended purpose of the best high priest was meant to point to all along. The whole priesthood was meant to point to the great high priest. Consider this passage in 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began and which has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Salvation in Christ was purposed before the ages began. Christ transcends the entire priesthood, and the entire priesthood was designed to prepare God's people until he came. They were to offer sacrifices in faith to God, and God was pleased with their offering because it pointed to his son, whose offering he would accept as the ultimate sacrifice for sins. So Jesus is our great high priest. Now, there are three specific statements in our text about what makes him great. We're just going to briefly look at those, and then we'll wrap up with the application to draw near to God's throne. So Jesus is a great high priest. We've already seen, transcends the priesthood. But the first thing we see is because he passed through the heavens. right? So look at verse 14 again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, what does it mean that Jesus passed through the heavens? Well, in the tabernacle, the veil separated the holy place from the innermost place called the Holy of Holies where the ark of God was and God would come and meet and dwell with his people. But again, that was a shadow of a true heavenly reality. God dwells in heaven, and Hebrews 10, 19 to 20, which is actually a parallel passage, if you will, to all the main points I'm going to be focusing in on, are kind of restated in Hebrews chapter 10, and it brings some clarity. It says this in Hebrews 10, 19 to 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. So the author tells us what the veil is, and that is through the flesh of Christ. So Christ came in the flesh, it's the incarnation. He died, was raised, and when he ascended, he passed through the heavens directly to the throne of God where he communes with God for all eternity. So the way he passed to the heavens was through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, think about this. Because of that, where the priest could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement, Jesus goes forever. And where death previously would end the priest's life, Christ holds this office of priest forever. He's the resurrected priest who is also a king in God's presence now, and he's never left, nor will he again, until he comes again. Look at Hebrews seven twenty-three to 25. It says this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, there is something amazing here. It's a little bit of a a side note, but I want to point it out because it, it is one of the tasks of the priest. 
one of the tasks of the priests before he offers atonement, he prays for his people. So you see Jesus fulfilling the office of the priest in John 17. That's why we call it the high priestly prayer. He prays that prayer as he's about to make atonement for the people, just like the old, old high priest did. And then he lays down his life. Jesus passes through the heavens. It says he actually continues to make intercession for God's people. I was reading last year a book called Deeper Real Change for Real Sinners by Dane Ortland, and he discusses the work of Christ as intercessor. And I remember as I was reading it, he was focusing on this specific point. He says, Jesus lives to make intercession for you. And I thought about Jesus right now in heaven, and tears came to my eyes. Jesus is praying for you right now. And the question popped up in my head, what might the Son of God be praying for me? All my battles, all my temptations, the Son of God is praying for you. He lives to make intercession. He continues his work as priest praying for you. And in this passage, he invites us to come talk to him. His atoning work is finished, but his praying is not. He prays for you now from the presence of God. The second thing we see about our great high priest in this passage is he's the son of God. Right? One of the titles of Jesus is the son of God and here the author is merging that title and giving the high priest his name. Our high priest has a name, Jesus, the son of God. He is God's son who became flesh and dwelt among us and he did something distinct from all the other priests before him. Here again, Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All the other priests before Christ had to bring the blood of bulls and goats, not only for the people's sins, but also for their own because they too were guilty. And Hebrews 10 says, those didn't even really take away sins. Sins were always taken away by the work of Christ. In the Old Testament, you just believed in faith and and, and obeyed God and looked ahead to the coming Messiah and we look back at the cross, right? We have always been saved by grace through faith. That has always been the way God saves his people. Jesus the Son of God does bring blood in his work as priest, but not for himself. And the blood he brings is not of a lamb without blemish, it's his own blood. Because the lamb without blemish points to him. You see, he's the fulfillment of everything in the tabernacle, he's the priest who is also the lamb, who lays down his life for the sheep and that blood that he brings is perfect holy blood which is why one single offering is enough to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified now we're told in that hebrews 10 passage that priests offered repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins in contrast to christ but there's something else we see in hebrews right when, when you just walk through the book of Hebrews and you look at um, how they compare Christ to the Old Testament priest, you see these differences. Old Testament priest stood daily. 
what does Christ do after offering one sacrifice? Sits down. Why? They can't sit because their work as priest is never done. There's no place in the whole tabernacle for the priest to sit. They stand daily at their service and Christ one time offers a sacrifice and he sits down and says, it is finished. Your sins are washed away by the Holy Son of God. This would have been unheard of for a regular high priest to do so. But Christ, God's Son, who offers his own blood, sits down. The third thing is that we see in this passage is this is beautiful. Jesus is sinless and sympathetic. So we are reminded of his sympathetic character and his sinless nature. The connection of sinlessness here is this ability to sympathize. So I think the author of Hebrews anticipates an objection we might have reading and considering Jesus as high priest. If he's so great and passed through the heavens, does he even care? Right? Sometimes when I think about the greatness of God, I think how can he be mindful of me, right? Like Psalm 8, right? Like sometimes I think that's a temptation. Can he really help me? Does he relate to me? And the answer is yes. He does care and he's able to help. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And you can see the author of Hebrews here is pointing out both his divinity and humanity. Right? In this text, and he is able to sympathize with us. Now the word sympathize just means to suffer with or to share the experience of another. Jesus doesn't just imagine how you feel. He's experienced life in the flesh. He's gone through all the difficulties that we go through. He's faced temptation. He's faced suffering. He was publicly mocked, shamed. You ever feel ashamed? Right? Christ was fully human with a heart, mind, desires, and emotions, and he experienced humanity in his fullness and therefore sympathizes with us. Now there's one exception. He did not sin. And that is an amazing exception. He not only cares and has shared experience, but he extends to hand his hand to help, and he is able to help us more than anyone else because he's without sin. Which again, the application we're going to make, come boldly to his throne for help, should begin to make more sense now. Why would you go anywhere else amidst the difficulties in life? There's no one who sympathizes more with you than your maker and the one who made atonement for you. And also, no one is able to help you in your battle against sin more than your sinless high priest. Nobody can help you more than him. Nobody cares more than him. Run to him. Know his character. Know his work. C.S. Lewis was just a brilliant mind. And I think anytime somebody talks about uh, Christ being sinless or um, overcoming temptation, uh, they always quote C.S. Lewis. And I'm going to do so too because just nobody says it better than C.S. Lewis. So uh, if there's a, a great quote, um, you got to just uh, quote it. So you may have heard this before, but this is C.S. Lewis because he, um, people talked about um, how can Christ tru- truly help us if he never gave in to temptation? And here's what C.S. Lewis said in response to that. 
A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. Right? So Christ doesn't really know temptation if he didn't give into it. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation actually know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. In other words, you and I give in to temptation after five minutes of the winds blowing against us. And you could walk by Christ facing the same temptation hours later after winds have been blowing and blowing and blowing and he's still standing. Who knows more about temptation? Him. He knows much more about it. And this is why Christ is such good news. I came out of a life of addiction and I will say, I think addictions are some of the strongest temptations in the world. I mean, drugs, alcohol, sex, that desire to come on and use feels so strong, it feels like it's impossible not to give in. What a comfort to know that as our cravings for what God has forbidden come on strong, we have a Christ who endured temptation and never gave in. And his, he is at work in us and able to empower us as we trust and walk with him to say no as he did. We say no in his power. So if you need help this morning, believer, you have the second Adam, the great high priest who was tempted in every way, every way that man was, that Adam and Eve were, that Israel was, every way he was tempted as we are, yet he never sinned. So finally, let's consider our response now to the great high priest. There are too many res- two primary responses that you see in the text. I'm going to focus in on the second one, but I'll give you the first one just briefly. He does say at the end of verse 15, 14, let us hold fast to our confession. Okay, so if we've got this great high priest, let us hold fast, cling to our confession. Well, what's our confession? <laughs> Right? The idea in the word confession is what we believe or hold to be true, which shapes the way you live. Right? And so this isn't a new thing. You guys know this. Right? Uh, the early church developed creeds and confessions to articulate summaries of biblical teachings. Right? We still hold to confessions. But the earliest confession was Christ. Right? And that's what every confession is meant to point to. Every confession is meant to point to Christ. The church's confession is Jesus, the Son of God who gave himself up for us in the gospel so that we could be made right with God. This is the ultimate confession we hold fast to. Think about what it means to hold fast to that. You walk in here with sin this morning? Hold on to your confession. You're not defined by your sin. So be obedient, confess it, repent, and experience afresh the gospel washing you. Hold fast to your confession. Suffering this morning? Hold on to the Christ who will walk through your suffering with you and show you how to glorify God in the midst of it. We hold fast to Christ. And if you don't, right, we know the danger of that. We shift either into legalism, if we are not holding on to Christ, we are going to stray into some kind of false gospel. 
right? And when we sin, we're going to try to clean ourselves up and then come to him, denying his work. Because nobody cleans themselves up to come to Christ. He cleans you up, right? And then you come to him. And the second response are to our high priest is a call to come with confidence to his throne. Verse 16 is amazing. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now I say this is amazing because God's throne is where he dwells and if we are still thinking in contrast to Old Testament language, the priest went into holies of holies with much trepidation. The author of Hebrews is telling us that we can go confidently into God's presence and this would have been shocking to the original readers. Normal Israelites can't go into the presence of God. God is telling us that we can and he is inviting us to do so. This is an amazing privilege that we have. I was scrolling on social media, this was a while back now, um, but uh, I came across this quote by a pastor here in Minnesota, um, and uh, his name's Luke Walker, and uh, he, he uh, said this, the sun will burn your eyes out from a distance of 92 million miles, and do you expect to casually stroll into the presence of its maker? Wow. Now, the answer, of course, is no. We don't casually just walk into God's presence. However, If we have understood our text this morning, we have a great high priest, Jesus, fully God, fully man, who obeyed all that God commanded of man. He is without sin and a perfect righteousness. This priest prayed for us. He offered his blood for us. He gave his life on that bloody Roman cross and God accepted that offering. He conquered death, rose from the grave, and is exalted, passing through the heavens where he sits down and invites his people to come in a righteousness that he has provided through the gospel. So, Christian, this means you can walk into the presence of the maker of the Son with a fireproof righteousness provided by Jesus Christ. And hopefully... The point is obvious by now that the confidence by which you draw near to the throne of God is in Christ. It is not in yourself. It is in him, his character and his work displayed in the gospel. This is a confident drawing near. A couple more words to pay attention to as we conclude. Notice the presence of God here is referred to a throne of grace. This is not a throne of wrath. All the wrath of God has been poured out on the sacrifice of his son. Right, if you think about that, right, where is the wrath of God directed to in scripture? You will see three places. Directed towards all unrighteousness, Romans 1. Directed towards the son on the cross. And directed to hell for those who reject the son for all eternity. If you are in Christ, you are no longer unrighteous, but made righteous by the cross and you have been delivered from hell. So the second one is where the wrath of God has been placed for you, Christian. It is on the Son, which means that every way God relates to you now is all grace. Even discipline is grace. And it doesn't feel pleasant at the moment. And God may be disciplining you this morning, but his throne is still a place of grace for you to run to. He is your heavenly Father who loves you and he disciplines his children. Those are the only people he disciplines, right? His children. 
The other word I want you to notice is mercy. It's a word that means compassion or pity. When you go to God for help in your time of need, you will find a compassionate Heavenly Father whose heart is moved towards you, understanding fully your condition and your need for help. You see the gospel that we've been talking about, the work of Christ as priest? The gospel flows from the character of God. I think sometimes we can forget that. We just think about the good news, what it is. The gospel flows from the mind and heart of God because of the great love with which he loved us. God demonstrated his love in sending Christ. Right? Like, all of it flows from his character. He is infinitely mercy, merciful. And so, when you come to him, come with confidence in the Son and come expecting to find mercy and grace and help for your time of need. So I'll ask this question again. Where do you turn to when you struggle with sin? Where do you run when you suffer in this life? Where are you fearful, want to get away? If we then have this great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, a sympathetic Savior who laid down his life for us, let us come with confidence and draw near to his throne. And as you do, God, God promises you, church, will find an abundance of mercy and a throne of grace. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you so much um, for the work of Christ as our high priest who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you that he has gone into your presence, declared us righteous, holy, blameless in your sight by his finished work. And so when we turn to you now, and I just pray that we would do that as we conclude in going to your table and in worship, that we would run with confidence because of the work of Jesus and that we would expect to find grace and mercy and help in our time of need. Thank you for the work of Jesus. May we obey this text today and the rest of this week we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.